Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Terry Pitar. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's Podcast. I'm Terry Pitar. I'm joined on this episode by Ahmed Buckley, who is uh, an expert on terrorism financing, amongst other things. And we'll get to the topic that we're going to talk about on this episode. Ahmed, thanks for joining me. Ahlan, welcome to the podcast. Ahlan B, thank you very much for having me. No problem. Um, I specifically wanted to talk to you about some research that you've done, and I should give a bit of background to your experience, but you were previously part of the analytical support and sanctions monitoring team at the UN, and you were part of a team that worked on some really interesting research, and we're going to unpack that a little bit by talking about some of the ways in which we're seeing, for example, cryptocurrency now being used in terrorism financing. It would be great just to get from you some of your experience or you know, an idea of your previous experience. You know, how did you come to work in that team and and maybe a bit about what you're doing now as you're now part of the uh, Egyptian foreign ministry? Well, thank you very much, Terry, for having me. So I was uh, part of the Egyptian foreign ministry and I was uh, working on their um, international counterterrorism coordination unit. I was the deputy director of that unit. And then I applied for the UN job and thankfully got it. And uh, let me tell you a little bit of what the team does. Uh, The analytical support and sanctions monitoring team is a small group of independent experts. They report directly to the Security Council and they monitor the activities of the three designated groups on the United Nations designated uh, groups list. So that's ISIL, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, along with associated individuals and, uh, and entities. What we do is we gather information from member states and present them to the Security Council, but uh, we also publish uh, two biannual reports every year and we help monitor uh, sanctions implementation in member states and deliver some capacity building when it is required, when it is asked of us. That's how I came to uh, across this information when I was trying to track down ways in which terrorist organizations were using cryptocurrency. And when I first joined the team in 2018, this was a fad. Uh, people were talking about it as a potential, as something in, in the future, but without any concrete cases. The cases were limited and, and, and far between. That's really um, interesting and because I, just to touch on that because the last time I really sort of looked at this topic it was maybe five or six years ago we were asked to do some research on whether terrorist groups were starting to use not just cryptocurrencies but digital currencies as a whole um, as part of their financing and at the time we looked into it we spoke to several experts who were also looking at it and the conclusion was that at that point in time they weren't doing that and that actually it was almost more difficult to use those types of currencies to move money around than it was to use the normal uh, ways that in other methods they were using. So it's interesting that that was still almost the perception when you started doing that kind of work. Absolutely. And I think and I think the, uh, you know, that truism that it, it is it is easier to track cryptocurrency than it is to, to track cash uh, that still applies even today. But that hasn't prevented these terrorist groups and individuals from, you know, from experimenting, from trying to adapt and learn and see ways where they can exploit gaps in regulations uh, pertaining to crypto uh, to bolster their finances. So in, in, in 2020, we had a number of cases that were exposed. 
um, uh, three in particular related, related to Al-Qaeda and ISIL directly, uh, others related to um, terrorist groups that are not designated on the United Nations uh, list, uh, but that we also followed, uh, you know, just because we understand that terrorists or, or these groups learn from each other. Um, and, uh, and and there's a lot of experience sharing amongst themselves. Um, so this was this was 2020. And, and here I just like to uh, give, uh, you know, give a shout out to the people who actually did the research and who actually uh, investigated these cases, whether in the US Department of, uh, of Justice, the district attorney's office and private sector companies that actually did the um, blockchain analytics work that uh, supported the uh, government law enforcement investigations. Uh, today, I'm just a conduit of their great work and I thank them for it. That's fantastic. And in an ideal world, it would have been great to get everyone on and talk to everybody about you know, the, the roles they played and some of the work. And I suspect some of it actually was probably very technical. So actually would have been maybe difficult in some some ways to explain and understand. But it'd be great to get from you an idea of those cases, the three that you mentioned, maybe talking us through some of those and what you saw and what you learned from those cases and how you think that this issue may develop. Yeah, you know, we'll come on to maybe talking about how it may develop in future. Sure. Yeah, I'd I'd, uh, I'd love to do that. Uh, let me first talk about some of the the early experiments. Uh, so, in way back in in 2013, we know that uh, ISIL issued this uh, short treaties called uh, Bitcoin and the Charity of this of the Physical Struggle. It was short. They discussed whether or not trading in Bitcoin was uh, was quote unquote halal and whether it can be used to fund the uh, so-called jihad. The treaties, uh, anyway, showed a weakness in their understanding of Bitcoin. Uh, I think this understanding was prevalent uh, at the time, even among law enforcement agents, that you know the Bitcoin is completely anonymous, that it can't be traced. But uh, that understanding, I think, has, has developed and changed. And uh, they've quickly come to learn that uh, it is traceable um, as uh, you know, as evidenced by some of the cases uh, that were exposed. And uh, within that within that treatise, though, when you say yeah. they were discussing whether it was halal or not, it, was that around the way that cryptocurrencies go up in value in terms of were they also looking at it not just as a means of moving money securely or anonymously as they believed it was at the time? Were they actually looking at it as a way to also generate funds and make money? Exactly. So they studied the jurisprudential uh, aspect of it from the fact that it is speculative. Is it akin to gambling? Mm. And uh, and from the aspect that it is also issued by by uh, apostates from you know and, and and people we 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 are at war with, whether we can still uh, use it. The conclusion of that treatise was that uh, it is useful because it is uh, it is a way to transfer money under the radar without being detected. And I think particularly at the time also in the areas where they were functioning, particularly in the Middle East, the understanding and the capacity to, to, to trace these transactions was very limited. Uh, so anything that happened at that time uh, certainly uh, went unnoticed and undetected. In, uh, in in 2017, uh, you, you've you've probably come across this case. There was one uh, New Jersey woman who was uh, convicted for bank fraud and, and money laundering, also affiliated to the uh, Islamic State. Uh, 
Uh, she had obtained uh, about 85,000 US dollars worth of cryptocurrency and tried to transfer it abroad. That was the one case that was affiliated to ISIL in, in 2017, and we had not seen any until 2020. So, and then in 2020, you started to see more cases? Exactly, exactly. And let me just dive into some of these cases. Yeah, that would be great. Let me start by the, the one case involving a, a cryptocurrency exchanger in, uh, in Idlib, in uh, northwestern uh, Syria. This was a physical office that was present there. It was controlled by the prevalent terrorist group in the area, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, and they went by the moniker of Bitcoin transfer. What they would do is they would help move money in and out of Idlib through cryptocurrency. So they served different terrorist groups and terrorist fundraising campaigns. These fundraising campaigns would solicit donations in crypto from abroad and then uh, layer them in a certain way, you know, through different hops or different transactions so that they would conceal uh, their original source. Eventually, they would, uh, these donations would move to a, a central hub of cryptocurrency wallet addresses that were run by this exchange, Bitcoin Transfer. Then Bitcoin Transfer would distribute the funds to, to these different entities. Mostly, they would just uh, cash them out for them, provide uh, cash in return for the cryptocurrencies that were uh, transferred to it. Some of the campaigns that were associated uh, with this office were Al-Ikhwa uh, were um, or Remembrance from Syria, uh, Leave a Mark, Utruk Atharan. But one of the groups that also used this service was known as Malhama Tactical. And Malhama Tactical was a, was a group mostly made of uh, Russian-speaking veterans of terrorism that also fought abroad uh, outside of Syria. They were directly associated with the largest terrorist group in Idlib, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, and they provided a sort of, they were HTS's firearms training arm. They provided some fighting expertise to uh, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. Malhamma, so, so you mean helping build the capacity of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Got it. Malhamma, um, they they advertised their uh, fundraising campaign on Telegram, not realizing, of course, that their channels were uh, were traceable and that there were uh, undercover communications were ongoing with administrators of these Telegram channels associated with the group. Anyway, that that's how the investigation began, I believe. Uh, at the end forfeiture warrants were issued and over uh, 150 hosted wallets uh, were were frozen confiscating about $150,000 worth of cryptocurrency wow and those hosted wallets were they being held and managed by individuals or by groups or as you described before like an, an office or something like that what what kind of entities were controlling those wallets yeah, they, they were being controlled by this uh, this office, this Bitcoin transfer office that okay. is waiting out of uh, Italy. Mm -hmm. So potentially beyond that office, once that once that money had been cashed out, the, in terms of the digital trail or the online trail, it kind of almost stopped at that office, and then you'd have to investigate by other means to figure out where that money went. Absolutely, but again, as I mentioned, most of the cases, the endpoint of where the the cryptocurrency ended up was were wallets belonging to Bitcoin transfer, and then they would cash out to uh, the terrorist individuals. Got it. It's an interesting way in which that functioned, you know, that process and the way that they ran it. And also that I guess they assumed there was a level of anonymity on those Telegram discussions that actually wasn't there. Absolutely. That's mostly the premise that it is anonymous, that it is untraceable. 
One of the mistakes that they also did was anytime they would check their wallets without using a uh, virtual private network, you know, that was also, you know, you, you can trace the IP that's checking into the wallets and right. you could uh, trace that back to the individual who's checking in on his hosted wallet and find out who is, who's actually managing that wallet address. Yeah, that is, that is fascinating actually to know. I think this is, this is really interesting insight for people who, maybe you're aware that cryptocurrencies are out there so maybe some people like you know who are listening to this are using them and trading cryptocurrencies themselves but there's probably a lot of people who aren't really that familiar with it and under you know, maybe don't understand some of the technology and how it works and yeah. also how people are using it and how these kinds of groups are using it so yeah this is really interesting one of the other cases that we managed to report was this one case out uh, of, uh, of France. And uh, this was also in uh, September or October of 2020 uh, when this was first announced. This was a group of individuals, over, over 20 uh, people, who were being controlled um, uh, by uh, two very savvy young financiers also operating out of northwestern uh, Syria. But they had French connections, uh, a network, and they used their network requesting from them to buy Bitcoin coupons. Bitcoin coupons was a scheme that it's a marketing scheme developed by two Bitcoin companies in France simply to uh, help people engage with crypto, help them invest. They would sell these uh, uh, cryptocurrency uh, or Bitcoin coupons in, uh, in tobacconist stores, uh, ranging from you know 50 euros a coupon to 250 euros. So small investments, really just uh, helping people get a foot into the cryptocurrency market. Some of these uh, coupons were bought by the network, and these small amounts of cryptocurrency were then uh, layered and moved. Uh, two wallets controlled by uh, the two financiers that I had mentioned earlier who were operating in Syria. And this was a way to collect small sums of money and transfer them a bit at a time from France to terrorist organization working in Syria. The network was discovered again just simply by tracing cryptocurrency movement and finding out that these two individuals in Syria were operating the endpoint of, of some of these Bitcoin uh, transfers uh, from France. The third case that we talked about in our reports and, uh, and that I talked about in that presentation that you saw, yeah, uh, that was uh, related to Face Mask Center. Face Mask Center. Face Mask Center, yes. This, oh, okay. this, this is a right. This was a, a website that came online in February of 2020. And, and it just, this was February 2020, and Face Mask Center is a website that purportedly sold PPE. So um, you can tell by the date that the site went online uh, that there was, the, you know, great foresight on the side on the on the side of these uh, of these terrorists. Sorry. I guess that was that was right at the outset when you know people were. I guess I mean you know I think we all saw a lot of companies suddenly spring up that were selling PPE once yeah. the pandemic got rolling. And I guess yeah, Fe February's definitely they were definitely early on the scene. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And they boasted that they were an interface of a, of a global leader in PPE procurement and distribution, that they can provide an infinite quantity of N95 masks. This was at the time when I couldn't find uh, dish soap in New York. So, <laughs> right. So, 
you can imagine how you know uh, such boastfulness of the infinite amount of PPE that they had raised suspicions of uh, uh, of law enforcement agencies. They used uh, Facebook to advertise their services, and uh, investigations uh, led to the knowledge also that the facilitator of the site was stealing uh, credit card information from his victims and using it to buy cryptocurrency that is then uh, uh, that was then moved uh, to where the facilitator resided. Uh, this was a, uh, a Syrian individual that was residing in Turkey at the time. And I believe that uh, later investigations found that he was also connected to that one individual in New Jersey who was indicted that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. So this wasn't the first time uh, he was trying to dabble in, uh, in in cryptocurrency. The site was eventually uh, brought down, and uh, the cryptocurrency that uh, that this individual managed to collect was seized. You know, in cooperation between uh, U.S. and Turkish authorities. What's interesting is that the three cases are, are each quite different to each other. Mm-hmm. There's some different characteristics there, different methods involved. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about in that in that second case, for example, about people buying the coupons, which is a different a different way of going about it. And then in that third case, taking advantage almost of the start of the pandemic and building a website based around that. But I mean, ultimately, that that money is well, it's being funneled into places and, and to people who along the along the lines, there's there are some people who are using those services, perhaps, or, you know, maybe buying those coupons or who were using that office in Idlib who aren't connected to terrorism financing. So it's it's kind of almost being mixed in with, I guess, other people's financial activity. To that extent, you know, what is, or, or how much do you think the this kind of increase in um, terrorist groups using cryptocurrency, how much is that just a part of, part and parcel of everyone starting to use cryptocurrency more generally, I guess? Yeah, just uh, just you know, be, before you, I answer that question, you mentioned you know how how these cases were very different. I particularly uh, enjoy the uh, uh, face mask uh, center case because it just has everything in it. You know, it's, it's terrorism finance, credit card fraud, PPE scam. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, it is pretty impressive. They hit a lot of marks there, haven't they? It is. Yeah. And, uh, and I always wondered, you know, if someone like Jeffrey Robinson or Jake Bernstein can turn it into a book or something. It, yeah. it would be a very interesting read. Definitely, and, I can already see the movie happening. <laughs> I can, I can see myself playing the uh, the financier. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But back to your question, I think the rise in terrorism use of cryptocurrency is definitely a function of of greater public uptake, definitely. Let's put things into perspective or into context. There's a surge of of people adopting cryptocurrency for a number of reasons. There's, There's institutional investment. In places also adjacent to conflict zones, there is an increase in uptake simply because people are trying to hedge against inflation. So two of the of the fastest growing crypto adopters in the world in terms of individuals buying into cryptocurrency are Turkey and Nigeria. And you can imagine how most of these people will be people trying to um, you know, beat inflation, uh, small time investors 
but there is a chance uh, for some nefarious actors to bandwagon on that uptake. I think it is now an, an archaic uh, thought that crypto is always associated uh, with crime. If you're buying Bitcoin, uh, then you must be either uh, a junkie or an anarchist. Uh, but that's, that's not the case anymore. And by exposing some of these cases, some of these ways in, in, in how terrorists are using cryptocurrency, that's in no way saying that uh, cryptocurrency is a crime or that we're trying to establish that uh, all uses of, of, of cryptocurrency uh, are nefarious. How much flow, how much activity on the blockchain is actually illicit? That's an uh, interesting question. And, and, and again, you know, we want to, we want to know because we're not trying to blemish uh, users of cryptocurrency in any way. Presumably, I mean, it's it's difficult to measure. You know, you can't necessarily get a, an accurate take on how much activity on the blockchain is related to illicit activity. True. Is but that fair? Or is there, the, is there some way of getting a, an, an I, estimate? I think, I think you're absolutely right uh, that maybe we can't get, uh, you know, a precise estimate, but that's not to say that uh, people have not tried. And I would rely on the estimates of some of these uh, blockchain analytics companies because mm. they can they can see uh, in real time the flow of Bitcoin or of Ethereum across wallets, and they can to some degree estimate, you know, what is the percentage of illicit activity uh, going on on the blockchain. Generally, with minute differences, uh, some of the reports I read uh, that covered illicit activity in 2020, uh, they ranged from between 0.5% and 1%. That was the amount of illicit activity on, on the entire uh, Bitcoin uh, blockchain. Right. If we take the conservative estimate that you know only 0.5% of, of the activity was illicit, that comes to about $10 billion worth of Bitcoin in illicit activity. Uh, it's not insignificant, but it's also not, you know, not commensurate with some of the perdition and sin city narratives that surround uh, the use of virtual assets. Again, put, putting this in context, is that kind of in line with terrorism financing as a whole, in the sense that when I've looked at it in the past, actually a lot of terrorist groups, the, the finances they require, the, you know, the amount of money that they are having funneled to them, from outside areas where they operate, perhaps, or where they've got a, a significant presence, tends to be quite small. You know, these are, it, it's it's a lot of small transactions often. Or you know, is that is that still the case, or is is it the case that actually that there are significant sums involved, and they actually do have quite substantial financial holdings, and you know, this is just another way of for them of almost diversifying their portfolio. No, you you're absolutely right. That is still the case. Um, and that's where I see the trend moving. Uh, it's going to continue. Terrorist activity is going to continue depending on uh, small amounts of money for uh, small time uh, activities or attacks. And that is still the case. And, and, and the three cases that I talked about, the entire amount of money that was confiscated from these activities was about $1 million. Again, that's $1 million too many. That's It's good. Yeah taking that money you know out of circulation from the hands of terrorists but absolutely it's not the amount of money that's you know compared to the big crimes the big financial crimes associated with with cryptocurrency ponzi schemes ransomware 
initial coin offering scams. These are big financial crimes associated with cryptocurrency, and they, um, you know, they're responsible for uh, billions of dollars worth of uh, of losses every year. Terrorism finance is way down on the list of crimes associated with uh, with digital currency, but handling that and 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 building capacity to fight that is is also important because, as you mentioned, it only takes a limited amount of money to create a, a huge impact. Sure. And it seems like, yeah, terrorist groups often do rely on on small amounts. They don't necessarily need a lot of money to carry out some of their activities. Um, I, I guess it depends. You know, I know it varies obviously from group to group and based on what territory they're operating in and mm. other sources of income they might have. But and maybe we can touch on that a little bit in terms of how they or, or the mix you saw from potentially those cases and the groups you were looking at what the mix was in terms of how much are they getting via transfers via cryptocurrencies compared to the overall mix of their funding you know is it still relatively small is it growing how did you see that kind of developing actually uh, i always say that's one of the factors that uh, will always hinder um, uh, terrorist use of, of virtual currency at least the groups that i'm following the, mm -hmm. you know, your isil al-qaeda uh, I'm not talking about um, right-wing groups who are not designated, and 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 you know, it, mm. it is still very legal for them to to handle cryptocurrency. Maybe for them, a digital currency plays a bigger role, but right. for but for the designated groups that I follow, at least, uh, the biggest hindrance uh, of their of them adopting cryptocurrency is that. The, the the traditional the tried and tested ways of raising money and transferring money still work and are still available to them so your uh your traditional hawala networks uh, mm -hmm. cash couriers the abuse of nonprofit sector um you know those are still uh, tried tested and 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 they have utility especially in the region you know especially in the, in the middle east but that's not to say that they will continue to um, experiment as we've seen them doing at least in 2020 they're they're adapters they're learners uh, they might experiment with things like decentralized finance where you can now collect cryptocurrency put them somewhere and make money out of it. Um, there are other uh, ways in which they can experiment in the future, in my opinion, but cryptocurrency will continue to play a small portion of the funds available to them and of um, and, and, and a small uh, way in which they transfer money across borders simply because, you know, these other methods, the old ones, the, the Hawala networks, they're still functioning and alive, and we still have, uh, in terms of, you know, as, as law enforcement agencies and, re and national regulators, I think there's still uh, a lot of room to cover, you know, to combat these traditional modes of uh, of money transfer. And within within though that use of cryptocurrency and the cases that we that you described that we saw in in 2020, will those kinds of cases perhaps put them off? You know, will they see actually, you know, we had this assumption previously that this was a more anonymous method maybe of moving money around. And actually, it turns out that it's not. Is that likely to have an impact, do you think, in terms of how they might perceive cryptocurrencies? I think they've come to the realization now that it's not, uh, uh, you know, completely anonymous, that it is traceable, that uh, law enforcement agencies 
particularly in certain jurisdictions, have the capacity to, to trace transactions, but they're, they're learners, they're fast learners and they will adapt. I mentioned they might experiment with uh, decentralized finance. Maybe they'll uh, experiment with, uh, you know, some of these privacy coins that are harder to trace, the, your Monero, your Zcash. Could you touch on those a little bit, just for those, you know, who are listening who maybe aren't familiar with those privacy coins and, and describe what the difference is between, say, one of those and, and something like Bitcoin or Ethereum? The major difference is that uh, with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not anonymous, it's pseudonymous. The ledger of transactions is completely public. Anyone can log in and find out that a certain wallet address delivered a certain amount of money to that to another wallet address. It's it's all open information. If I can associate the wallet address with, uh, with a known name, then I have the information available to me who is responsible for that wallet address. Uh, and I can do that through um, open source uh, intelligence methods. You know, all of these wallet addresses are searchable online. There are websites that uh, that I can log in and I can, you know, type in a wallet address and find out who it is associated to. And uh, and these blockchain analytics companies do a very good job of matching wallet addresses to entities and names. So basically it's not difficult using bitcoin to find out that this wallet address belongs to this person and so the entire history of transactions is available the privacy coins it's different yes the ledger is is public but the wallet addresses that appear on the ledger are are, are, are encrypted so so i cannot associate them automatically with with a known entity uh, it takes more time more research to find out who this person is. It's only easy to, to catch them if they try to transform that cryptocurrency into cash at some point, or if they chain hop, you know, if they move that uh, privacy coin and transfer it or trade it uh, to another coin that is uh, that is not a privacy coin, like exchange right, right. to Bitcoin or something. Even with privacy coins, the good thing about you know our, our capacity to catch these perpetrators and and to uh, limit the illicit use of these coins is that we're developing solutions now. We're slowly developing solutions, even with privacy coins, to try and uh, you know crack uh, who they belong to. Private sector companies are also making. They're developing ways in which to um, fill in capacity gaps in 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 areas such as the Middle East and, and Africa. I don't know if you've recently heard Dubai police is now, you know, they have a unit now that, that, that is able to track down on cryptocurrency exchanges. Some of the Gulf countries are, are moving forward in that too. So we're closing in gaps where where there is where, where law enforcement doesn't have the capacity. I'm a, I'm worried about other areas uh, of the world and I'm worried about um, capacity gaps that lead to arbitrage uh, that, you know, some jurisdictions uh, where cryptocurrency will be uh, less regulated and where law enforcement agents will have uh, lower capacity to detect and to uh, cooperate with other jurisdictions. These are these are the areas where I think, you know, we need to we need to focus on and we need to educate our regulators and our law enforcement agents there that there is a way in which you can transform cryptocurrency from something that is a nightmare to you into something that is much more traceable than cash. The fact is that cryptocurrency is 
a lot more traceable than cash. And the other question I was going to ask was at some point, given the, you know, the proliferation of currencies we've seen and how many new ones pop up all the time, you know, the barrier to entry to actually creating your own cryptocurrency seems to be getting lower if, or, you know, maybe people are more familiar with how to do it. You know, might we see a terrorist group at some point launch their own cryptocurrency? Yeah, it's easy to launch, but it's not as uh, as easy um, to uh, to adopt as it was, you know, uh, a couple of years ago. I think uh, I think people are are tired of uh, of, of coin scams and of coins that um, that were advertised and then turned out to be um, rubbish in terms of um, uh, in terms of their value. As you said, the technology is there. Uh, you can. It's it's easy to to put out a, 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 an initial coin offering, but I don't think people are, are ready to um, to take that on anymore simply because of the amount of coins that went bust in in the last uh, in the last few years. Oh, this has been a fascinating discussion, and uh, I feel like I could sort of talk to you for ages to really. Um, get into the details and the and, and the weeds of the these different cases that you've talked about and the different aspects of this issue i mean were there any other thoughts you had other things you wanted to share things that you came across from your research that you thought actually other people might benefit from understanding about this so for anyone who is doing this sort of investigation whether it's on a, a telegram channel or one of the public chat forums you will occasionally come across chatter involving cryptocurrency or wallet addresses particularly if a wallet address is mentioned or if uh, if an entity is mentioned that is associated with cryptocurrency. Uh, there's always an open line of communication with some of these uh, blockchain analytics companies. Um, you know, they, they have emails advertised where you can log in and send that information you found. And that information connects directly to the law enforcement agencies that they are working with. That's one thing that uh, that we can do as uh, as researchers. And as I mentioned, just, you know, any wallet address, any fragment of a wallet address that you come across in, in, in some of these forums, that's that's searchable and that is good intelligence that you can provide your law enforcement agency or blockchain analytics companies that are working uh, in your jurisdiction. Well, I mentioned capacity building is one of the things that we need to cover. Also, awareness in some of the jurisdictions that still think uh, that still associate cryptocurrency with crime. There are good examples out there of, of of countries that were able to make use of real private public partnerships in cracking down on the use of cryptocurrency in uh, in, in in illicit activity. Uh, some of the examples are uh, UK's Jimlet, uh, uh, you know, Joint Money Laundering mm-hmm. and Intelligence Task Force. I think that's a great uh, public private forum that really helped to build regulations and and capacities in that area. Australia's Fintel Alliance, that's also another example. And I just um, hope that we'll see more of these forums pop up, particularly in areas that are more vulnerable, you know, in the Middle East and Africa. I feel like I've learned a lot from this discussion and there's so many insights that you've shared with us that's been been really useful. And uh, again, Terry, thank you very much. You've been very generous with your time. No, no, thank you. So thank you very much. Shukran Kazilan, Tasha Rafna. It's been really nice speaking to you and uh, yeah, I hope we'll, uh, we'll continue this discussion and talk more about this issue as it develops further.
Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. Uncover the threat landscape with assured and interconnected threat intelligence from Jane's, covering military capabilities, terrorism and insurgency, country risk, and CBRN. Support your threat and capability assessments and enhance your situational awareness with Jane's threat intelligence solutions. Find out more at janes.com slash threat.